0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. We all need to eat to survive, and the quality of the food, the access
1: to the food, the type of food that we eat is central to our health and the health
0: of our planet. This week on the show, a conversation with Carrie Gillum, the author of The Monsanto Papers, Deadly Secrets, Corporate Corruption, and One Man's Search for Justice. And we have part three of Harvest Public Media's report on the influence of agribusiness on public universities. That's all just ahead. Stay with us. First this. Welcome to Earth Eats. We'll start with food and farming updates from Harvest Public Media. A trade group promoting plant-based meat substitutes wants to toss out an Oklahoma law that it says undercuts the industry. Similar laws are on the books in other Midwestern states. Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine reports.
1: The Oklahoma law says labels should identify a food product as plant-based in lettering as large as the name of the product for foods like tofurkey. The Plant-Based Foods Association, the Animal Defense Legal Fund, and Tofurkey are teaming on a lawsuit against the state and federal court. Ben Abel is a lawyer specializing in food labeling law. He says an earlier lawsuit was tossed out by a judge, so the trade group is taking a different approach.
2: So what they're saying is, okay, if Oklahoma says we have to have labels that have the word plant-based just as large as the word hot dog, but California doesn't require us to have the term plant-based just as large as the term hot dog. What are we supposed to do?
1: Meat labeling laws have been passed
2: or proposed in Nebraska, Missouri, and Kansas. Seth Bodine, Harvest Public Media.
0: Small family farms still make up the vast majority of farms in the United States. But as Harvest Public Media's Jonathan All reports... New numbers from the U.S. Department of Agriculture show they are becoming even more financially fragile.
2: The USDA has said over the past 10 years the number of small family farms at risk of losing money has gone up, while the number of big farms in the same category went down. USDA economist Christine Witt says that doesn't mean more small farms are in trouble. Small family farms typically rely on off-farm income. That means small family-owned farms are increasing their reliance on outside income to continue farming. In addition, the report shows small farms still make up 90% of all farms, but the percentage of total farmland and production that represents is going down. Jonathan All, Harvest Public Media.
0: It's becoming harder to get tax dollars to fix up agriculture schools at public universities, and even harder to find public money to build new facilities but the farming industry is stepping in. In part three of Harvest Public Media's Big Ag U series, Katie Pikus reports with Seth Bodine on the growing ties between agribusiness and college campuses.
2: The heavy hum of construction equipment reflects millions spent to build a feed mill tower in Ames, Iowa. The project promises a working feed mill and ways to use that in both research and training. It'll crank out about 20,000 tons of feet a year, and it costs $24 million to build. But Iowa State University and taxpayers aren't paying a dime. Private donors are picking up the tab, notably agribusinesses. Charles Herberg is an Iowa State University agricultural engineering professor. He says the facility will run like a business and hopefully draw more students to milling.
1: And that's one of the target areas that we want to meet, is to be able to help those people get onboarded into companies and and and, and even existing staff of companies bringing them up to speed with new technologies.
2: This privately funded facility fits with a trend Ag schools at public universities increasingly pull in money from industry and other private sources as legislatures grow less willing to chip in tax dollars. The practice builds stronger relationships with the farm-related industries where many of the school's graduates will want to work. But critics worry those ties could turn work at universities that puts industry needs above a broader public interest. Emma Schmidt is with Food and Water Watch. And just in general, agribusiness as it stands right now is...
1: You know, It's not about the small farmer. It's not about rural communities in, across Iowa. It's about Wall Street. It's about making a profit.
2: State tax dollars to Iowa State decreased 19% in the last dozen years. Funding from agribusinesses makes big projects like the feed mill possible. Ray Klein is the director of the Office of Partnerships for the Ag College. I consider it critical, and I consider it in some ways a, a reinforcement of the, the relationship Relationships that we have in place with all of our industry partners. For other states like Oklahoma, where funding has been cut more than 30 percent between 2008 and 2018, money from private donors is a necessity. Michael Leachman is with the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. He tracks trends in state policy. Even going into the pandemic, funding still remained well below recession, pre-great recession levels. In most states, and in many states, the funding cuts were severe. Agriculture departments across 97 universities have an $11.5 billion backlog in repairs. And many researchers are stuck with older, crumbling labs. Peter Reeves collected data for the study. He says that money has gone toward new buildings over investing in old ones.
1: And so then what we ultimately are left with is this situation where, you know, we have aging out infrastructure. Um, that has been underinvested in for years, and the cost of waiting is starting to catch up with these campuses.
2: Some researchers at Oklahoma State University work in outdated buildings that haven't been upgraded, and that affects their research. Plant and soil sciences professor Brett Carver spends his time breeding wheat inside greenhouses that were built in the 1950s. He says it's like we're trying
1: to race or perform in an Indy 500 in 2021 with a car that would have been manufactured in the 50s. We can do things. We can soup up that car to to maybe try to keep up, but we're gonna eventually pay the price for that.
2: And they did pay the price. When a winter storm hit, the greenhouses got too cold. Carver says that could put him up to a year behind on his research. University officials say Carver's greenhouses are on the list of funding priorities. They're soliciting private and corporate sponsors to raise roughly $15 million to build new ones. And for Iowa State's feed mill, the Ag College plans to seek out state, federal, and private funds for research. Wherever universities get their funds, trends show they'll continue to look for money from agribusiness. Katie Pikus, Harvest Public Media. This
0: story was co-reported with Harvest Public Media's Seth Bodine. It's part of Big Ag U, an investigative series by Harvest Public Media and Investigate Midwest on corporate influence at public universities across the Midwest. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. As a consumer, when you reach for a product to solve a household problem, say you need to remove poison ivy from your yard, you want to be able to trust that what you find in the store has been tested for safety and that any concerns or precautions will be listed on the label so that you can decide if it's the right choice for your application. Americans have been using the weed killer Roundup for years and it has been marketed as safe for farmers and for everyday people to handle and use in their yards and on school playgrounds. But a series of lawsuits have revealed that Monsanto, the company that produced Roundup and many other agricultural products, concealed important research on the herbicide showing links to cancer, in particular non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Award-winning journalist Carrie Gillam has covered Monsanto for years. She closely followed the litigation process and the story of Lee Johnson, who was the first one to win a case against Monsanto after he developed a severe case of non-Hodgkin lymphoma following accidental skin exposure to Roundup when working as a landscaper at a public school. I spoke with Carrie Gillam in April of 2021 about her book, the Monsanto Papers, Deadly Secrets, Corporate Corruption, and One Man's Search for Justice. So, you have been reporting on agriculture issues for decades now, and I was wondering how, how did you get into this topic, and is there anything in your background or your personal interest that sort of leads you towards reporting on food and farming?
2: You know,
1: my mom grew up in rural Kansas, in southeast Kansas, and had sort of a little farm, her family did, but that certainly was not how I grew up. Uh, my family moved all over the country. You know, when I was four years old, we lived in Boston, and we lived in Dallas, and we never farmed, and I really didn't know much about agriculture other than we'd go back and visit my grandma and my mom's hometown sometimes. and go visit a hog farm or a dairy farm, uh, friends of of the family. But I was actually living in Atlanta, and I was writing about big banks for a a big news organization when Reuters hired me and asked me to move to Kansas and start covering food and agriculture. There was a commodities trading market here in Kansas City for hard red winter wheat. (laughs) But uh, also because Monsanto just down the the highway in St. Louis, Missouri, Monsanto had just rolled out genetically engineered crops and it was really revolutionizing agriculture. These new kind of crops that could be sprayed directly with a weed killer and not die and it was just a a magical marvel of modern farming and uh, so they needed somebody to cover the industry from from this neck of the woods and I took the job and
0: I guess never looked back. I've been doing that now since 1998. So from the beginning, you were really focused on Monsanto. Is that correct? I had a lot of different job responsibilities, but for our equities
1: team, it was to cover publicly traded companies in the ag space, and that was Monsanto. It was also, you know, DuPont that had Pioneer and, and Syngenta and BASF and Dow AgroSciences and all of these companies that were chemical companies that were moving into agriculture very rapidly during that era and really trying to. Develop this new profit stream off of specialty seeds and the chemicals that they could sell to farmers, uh, these pesticides that they could sell to farmers to use in agriculture. So it was, a big, it was a big beat, big industry, very important to the American economy. You know, it touches every single life in a very profound way. We all need to eat to survive. And the quality of the food, the access to the food, the type of food that we eat is central to our health and the health of our planet. So I've come to believe that this work in this industry is very, very important for all of us.
0: So you have followed the litigation process against Monsanto in recent years, which is around the concerns that Roundup and Ranger Pro Uh, these popular herbicides that are being used in farming, but also in home gardening and in landscaping, that these chemicals had links to cancer, in particular, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so you've released two books about this recently, and I was wondering if you could just talk about those two books, um, what they each cover, um, how they differ, and we could start with Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer and the corruption of science. Sure. So as I said, these genetically engineered crops
1: really did revolutionize agriculture because they allowed farmers to spray this chemical called glyphosate, which is the key active ingredient in Roundup herbicides that Monsanto developed. Monsanto patented glyphosate in the 1970s. And they sold this this herbicide, Roundup, and other glyphosate herbicides throughout the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, but the patent was expiring on glyphosate in the year 2000, and Monsanto was looking for a way to hold on to that market, increase that market share, and also they had this technology they developed for these genetically engineered crops where they could tweak the DNA so that these crops like corn and soybeans and cotton sugar beets canola could withstand being sprayed with glyphosate weed killers and when that was introduced to the market glyphosate use skyrocketed it just took off and it was you know a great money maker so with this pervasive use of glyphosate, scientists started really looking at the impacts of uh, this. It became the most widely used herbicide in all of history (laughs) around the world. And so scientists, of course, wanted to understand, you know, is this, what kind of impact is this having? We're finding glyphosate residues in water, in food, in air samples, in rainfall, in human urine. We need to know what this is doing to the environment. And more and more research started showing that it was having a harmful impact on the health of the soil, the health of certain insects and pollinators, and many scientists started doing research and finding that there appeared to be a link or association between this chemical and particular cancers, uh, non-Hodgkin lymphoma in particular. And this was all many many years ago. And I was writing about this research and. Eventually, by 2015, I think it was, or 2014, Island Press, a publishing house out of Washington, D.C., contacted me and said, these are really fabulous, important stories you're writing, you know, could you put this into a book? And I said, oh gosh, no, nobody would want to read about, about pesticides. But uh, then the International Agency for Research on Cancer declared glyphosate a probable human carcinogen, and then all of this litigation started being filed, and all sorts of things started happening. I left Reuters, I went to this nonprofit group, and called Island Press back and said, Yeah, I think I'll write that book now. So, Whitewash came out in 2017 and really just made waves around the world. I was asked to testify to the European Parliament about my research and my findings. It won three awards. Uh, I was asked to travel throughout Europe and Canada and throughout the U.S. and to Australia to speak about this research. And of course, you know, this this isn't me, a journalist, doing scientific work. This is me reporting on scientific work and reporting on a lot of freedom of information documents and other, other records I was able to obtain that showed that Monsanto had been working really hard to whitewash or hide or cover up the risks of glyphosate, the risks of these products. And then that book, you know, was finished and done, and I said, I'll never write another book. Um, <laughs> and then this really just fascinating case of Lee Johnson versus Monsanto, the very first person to take Monsanto to court to trial over this allegation that these these glyphosate based weed killers like Roundup caused non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And the story was just so incredible the way these lawyers came together and put together this very first trial uh against almost insurmountable odds. I I thought there was no way they could pull this off or make this case You know, against Monsanto, and there were you know a near tragic accident, and somebody almost dies, and then somebody else, you know, just it it felt like a movie. And I thought, and I thought, I can't make a movie, but I can write a book. So that's where the second book, the Monsanto Papers, comes out, and it's it's very much written like a novel, even though it is nonfiction. Everything is true, everything is documented, but I really tried to write it the way that i experienced it which was just a roller coaster ride of emotions and drama and twists and turns and (laughs) so it's gotten a lot of good feedback in in that regard that people do say it reads like a grisham novel or like a movie or or something like that
0: yeah it really is a riveting read and it just really clearly spells out all of the issues you know everything that happened What's at stake? Who was involved? Like, I think that the format that you told it in really also does a really good job of communicating to the reader. And by the time I finished, I really felt like, okay, I, 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 know, what, I know what happened. And, and I also really felt like I, I, I was listening to a, a true crime podcast at the same time period that I was reading the book. And I don't know if you've listened to In the Dark
1: yes yes wonderful yes
0: yeah the curtis flowers case is just amazing and yes oh, yes
1: i love that one. Oh my gosh
0: yeah between reading your book and listening to this podcast i was just like fuming you know every day which is like injustice so yeah it's it's an infuriating story at times
1: i hope it's one that touches readers too though because this man that you follow through the book, Lee Johnson, he had such a hard life growing up, but then he got himself together and and got this great job and was doing well for his family and taking care of his little boys. And then he gets this horrible, excessive exposure to this chemical weed killer. And then he develops this just brutal cancer. And the doctors tell him he's only got 18 months to live. And he's heartbroken, but he's you know and he's in pain and he's going through chemotherapy but he's also trying to go to court against Monsanto to try to hold them accountable in some way and it's just it was just movie I mean writing the book was difficult at times because I spent so much time with Lee and I saw how much pain he was in and trying to convey that was um, emotional and just writing it It was emotional experience.
0: Yeah I can imagine it's a very upsetting story especially that that personal aspect of it so can you sort of summarize or talk about for you what what's at stake in this story what is it about i mean it's about so many things it's a story about regulation and and regulations failure it's a story about food safety about product safety corporate accountability misinformation you know just like what what does it mean for you now where you know just kind of where you're at having done all of this work
1: you're right i mean it's about so many things and i mean that's intentional right and i think you know i dedicate the book to to people with cancer or people who have suffered or you know lost loved ones to cancer because in this work that i've been doing learning about pesticides and chemicals and toxins in our environment it's all so closely tied to cancer. And so much of our scientific research shows us that these environmental contaminants in our world are direct causes of many, many types of cancers that we're suffering from. And 40% of men and women now in the United States are expected to get cancer in their lifetimes, according to the National Cancer Institute. And that, to me, just is outrageous and wrong and you have so many government scientists and independent and academic scientists saying, trying to raise the alarm bell and, and say, we've got to get a handle on this. You know, our, our kids are going to have a really dark, painful future if we don't do something to clean up our world and to do something about these toxins. But too often, those voices get shut down or they get intimidated or harassed or censored. So this story is sort of emblematic of that larger context, that it certainly isn't one company, one type of cancer, one chemical. It's a much bigger contextual problem that we face, but I think that the story of Monsanto and this particular chemical and this cancer and this man really does highlight and hopefully resonate with people and touch their heart and touch their soul and, and touch their conscience in a way that they understand you know there's some accountability the companies need to be accountable the regulators need to be accountable we all need to be accountable so that we give our kids and their kids and their kids and their kids you know a healthier future so it's all of that I guess wrapped up in this story and it's also a look at the legal process, because it wasn't just Lee. I mean, Lee was the first person, but a 100,000 people have now sued saying that their non-hodgkin lymphoma is due to this, this exposure. And the company that bought Monsanto has agreed to pay 11 billion dollars to these people to try to, you know, make amends in some way. So it's a very timely and newsy. Topic, But the only reason that this company agreed to pay, the only reason that these people know, the only reason that people around the world are now starting to limit their use of this chemical is because these lawyers came together and said, we're going to try to build a case against this company, even though they make $15 billion a year. And we're going to have to shell out millions of dollars and spend years of our life trying to put these cases together to hold this company accountable. We're going to try to do it. And if these lawyers hadn't done it, we wouldn't have it because our regulators don't hold companies accountable.
0: Well, I think you do a really good job of, of showing that. And it it is interesting and something that, you know, though, I, I feel like that's a a field that gets you know demonized a little bit in in our culture at times, and and it was really important to understand. Without these guys, we this wouldn't be happening. And it's it's kind of like you know it's a David and Goliath story, but the the lawyers are are the rock, that's that's making it happen, and. It really does feel like, I I felt like I gained an understanding of why these settlements need to be so large, why the, not just to to punish the the companies, but also because of everything that it takes to actually go up against a company like this. That's why an everyday citizen just can't do it. It it costs too much money to do that kind of work. And, And you really showed like the the long nights and the long days and the, the kind of personal sacrifice that it takes to be on one of these teams. It really does. And,
1: but you also, I also in writing this book, and there's mention of a little bit of this in the book, but there are also lawyers out there who who do almost nothing and, and do try to simply exploit the situation for their own gain and don't put a lot of time and effort and money into it. I mean, one of the lawyers in the book ends up in prison. So, you know, there's, as I said, there's good and bad and ugly, and it's a very imperfect system. But... If you don't have the lawyers who, like, led this litigation, the ones who really are, you know, carrying the yoke and doing the back-breaking work and putting their own dollars, millions of dollars, or savings, mortgaging their houses, putting their family lives on hold, if you don't have those people doing the work, you don't have accountability. So
0: we need to
1: recognize and address that in our country as well. I'm speaking
0: with Carrie Gillum about her book, The Monsanto Papers, Deadly Secrets corporate corruption, and one man's search for justice. More from our conversation after a short break. Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. Let's return to my conversation with journalist Carrie Gillum about the case against Monsanto's herbicide glyphosate and its links to non-Hodgkin lymphoma. So I know you already touched on this, but I was hoping we could talk about it a little more carefully just to explain to listeners who may not know as much about it. So glyphosate is one of the chemicals that is in Roundup, and then there are other chemicals that are in there too. I think surficants is one of the things that just kind of help it stick to the plant and that though that's part of what was toxic or damaging because correct me if I'm wrong but my understanding was is that part of what makes it stick to the plant is also what's making it cling to someone's skin if they should spill it on themselves. Is that correct? That's probably a really good way to explain it. These surfactants
1: um, that Monsanto was using, one in particular that they were using, many of the scientists who were studying this found that the formulated product, that is, you know, the Roundup product, not glyphosate by itself, but glyphosate mixed with the surfactants was more toxic than glyphosate by itself. The remarkable thing, regulators don't require long-term carcinogenicity testing on formulated products. They just don't. So they never required cancer tests for Roundup. They required a whole bevy of, you know, testing on glyphosate by itself, but not the formulated product. And it wasn't until 2016 that they said, huh, Maybe we really should start looking at the formulated product. Maybe we should have our national toxicology program do some, you know, laboratory tests on that. And the national toxicology program came back and said, yeah, looks like these formulated products are much more toxic than glyphosate by itself. You know, this was something that Monsanto, even internally, acknowledged and you could see in their own internal documents that they talk about we haven't done this kind of testing on our formulations we can't say roundup's not a carcinogen we don't know we haven't tested it we've only tested glyphosate by itself so that was a real issue and and concern that was highlighted at trial with all the internal documents and the regulatory issues but you're right the surfactants do help the chemical sort of adhere to the leaves of a plant that they're designed to kill. And they also help adhere or absorb into your skin. And dermal absorption rates was a term thrown around in this litigation because the science that Monsanto was trying to hide from regulators at one point was about the dermal absorption and how it could get into your skin and get into your bloodstream much more rapidly than people had thought.
0: I'm I'm just going to try to back up a little bit because I I kind (laughs) of went off on something. So Roundup and and Ranger Pro and these herbicides, they're often referred to as pesticides, but they really are herbicides and they're, they're designed to kill weeds, they kill plants, and they're often used on school grounds. They're often used just like along fences to kind of clear away weeds where you might not be able to get a lawnmower or a weed whacker. And... And at first they weren't really used much in agriculture. And you were saying earlier that when their patent was about to to expire, then they released uh, these Roundup Ready seeds so that they could actually be sprayed on, that this, this chemical could be sprayed on crops without killing the plant, the crop that you're trying to grow. Could Could you explain that again?
1: Sure, sure. And um, herbicides are pesticides. They're part of a, a class of chemical that is known as a pesticide, and they're regulated by the Office of Pesticide Programs at the EPA um, because a weed is considered a pest. It's a plant pest. <laughs> so farmers were using them. Farmers have used weed killers since you know companies have been selling them weed killers. But they always had to be incredibly careful, of course, not to get these weed killers or herbicides anywhere near what they were trying to grow, right? Their crops, because not only would they kill weeds, but they would kill their crops. Um, So they had to be very careful. They had to limit their use and time their use. And it was just a much more difficult process for them to keep their fields free of weeds when they were trying to grow their crops so when monsanto said hey we've learned how to change the dna of these crops and we're going to use a transgene uh, take genes from a different species and splice it into here and then it will be tolerant of glyphosate farmers just thought this is great because i can have a whole field full of corn or soybeans and I can just spray right over the top of it and those plants are going to be fine and all the weeds will die. And they loved it, but it did leave then. Then you got into this issue of, well, then we're going to have this weed killer is going to be in the food. It's going to be in, you know, the livestock feed that we make with soybeans. It's going to be in food that we make with corn or, you know, canola or sugar beets. I remember talking to a, an academic at, uh, I think it was um, North Dakota State University, or was it South Dakota State, <laughs> one of those, uh, and he had been testing flour, and he said he was just so shocked because he'd found glyphosate residues in, in all the samples of flour that he tested. And so you know, that was a game changer. That That's where our exposure, people who aren't farmers, people who just eat food, uh, where your exposure to this weed killer became pretty pretty dramatic and pervasive.
0: Yeah, so there's concerns about the ge- genetically modified foods and what, what does that mean? How is that going to affect us? There's concerns about the residues in the food. And then also there's been concern recently about the drifting onto neighboring crops I know that's been a big deal with soybean farmers, that when this spray drifts over onto a farm that's not using the Roundup Ready seeds, then (laughs) it's destroying their plants.
2: Well, and
1: yes, what's happened there is, so glyphosate, again, and this is sort of if you set aside the human health element, but just look at the environmental health element, Uh, what you see is that glyphosate was used so much that weeds have become resistant now to glyphosate. So you have millions of acres of farmland with weeds that are resistant to glyphosate now. So in recent years, what you're seeing farmers do now is use products that combine glyphosate with other weed killing chemicals such as dicamba or something called 2,4-D. And so Dicamba is the actual chemical that people that has been drifting and wiping out orchards and and other people's crops and things, and dicamba damage has uh, resulted again in in lawsuits and a lot of issues, and uh, the ePA is is under fire right now for approving these dicamba glyphosate combinations that are being okay. sprayed, yeah.
0: Oh, thank you so much for clarifying that. I really uh did definitely get it confused in my mind.
1: Well, it's definitely it's definitely all related. I mean, it you know, they're only using dicamba now and they're spraying dicamba directly over crops because Monsanto has introduced uh dicamba tolerant crops that you can spray directly with dicamba and glyphosate. So you're you're getting a you know, a double load here now of pesticides in your soybeans.
0: <laughs> right. So I guess one of the other things that I found so interesting about your, or just, you know, really revealed, it, it was something I kind of knew about, but it was incredible to see it spelled out. It's just sort of the links that this company was willing to go to, to kind of either not look into, not investigate whether it was, uh, not study whether there were links to any cancers or health concerns, and then when there were links suspected, really trying to suppress that information. Could you talk about that a little bit and how... I mean, I know you said it's not just about one one company, but this company is kind of extraordinary in the ways that they did this.
1: I, I really think that they are. Um, I mean, you certainly have seen this across industries, m- many, many industries and many products, but I-, I feel like Monsanto's level of deception and harassment and intimidation tactics and collusion with regulators and ghostwriting of scientific research papers. I mean, they were were ghostwriting articles to go in Forbes magazine, you know, to have articles that would look like they came from this academic, uh, this very, you know, highly regarded academic saying how safe glyphosate is and all these cancer scientists are wrong and glyphosate is so safe, no connection to cancer, I'm an academic, you can believe me. I don't work for Monsanto, you can believe me. But then you see in these internal documents that Monsanto wrote the article. And, and they talk internally about, we need to use third parties. They had companies hired to write op-eds and letters to the editor that would go out to newspapers around the country. And and this, these firms would find quote unquote authors, you know, somebody's name to put on these these ghost-written articles, and just levels of deception that are so unethical. I mean, just, you know, you're talking about cancer, and all you really had to do was put a warning label that said, this International Agency for Research on Cancer says that this is a probable human carcinogen, you know, like tobacco, like on cigarettes, put a warning label on there, give people a heads up. We saw documents, they told their own people, you know, be sure you wear all of this protective gear when you're spraying this. Yet at the same time, they're advertising this product, showing people barefoot or flip-flops in shorts and just out there spraying this stuff with no protective gear and telling people it was safe for pets and people. You you can spray it in your yard where your kids are going to roll around and throw a ball for your dog and... Uh, You'll be fine if that wasn't the truth. It was a lie.
0: And I think it's one of the the biggest what's at stake moments for me reading it. When we're trying to find out if something's true, we might look to something like Forbes magazine, or we might, you know, we're going to go to the trusted sources, or we're going to say, hey, this is written by scientists, or this has the backing of the scientific community. And if that's being manipulated, it kind of leaves consumers sort of with nowhere to go for facts.
1: Yes, it's outrageous. It's unfair uh, to consumers. It should be illegal. And this isn't about a campaign to ban a chemical or ban a group of chemicals. This is about a right to know. This is about a right to truth and transparency. People can make informed decisions about risks that they're willing to take or risks that they're not willing to take. For their health or food that they want to eat, but you should have truthful information. And when someone or some company works so actively to push untruthful information, dishonest information, you know, that's when you have to write a book about it, I guess.
0: (laughs) And then to see even that the EPA was being manipulated or there was, you know, some. Uh, some shady business going on with with the EPA too so this regulatory body that we're looking to to tell us if if these products are safe can also not be trusted is what it seems like
1: that is certainly true and that is definitely not only about one company that is something that has gone on since the formation of the EPA in the 1970s and it's very very unfortunate It's been documented over and over and over again, their allegiance and alliance to rich and powerful corporate entities that hold sway with lawmakers in Washington, D.C., and the political appointees that run these agencies, that run the EPA. There's a really good example in another chemical called chlorpyrifos, that's an insecticide that, again, is used in farming, that's sprayed on our food, that residues are found in our food and our water uh, that is known to cause brain damage, essentially, in children, neurodevelopmental damage in children. And it's been known for years. It was banned for household use more than 20 years ago. EPA's own scientists said there's no amount of this that can be allowed in food or water. There's no amount of this that is safe. It was scheduled to, to be banned from agricultural use in 2017. Then Donald Trump got elected. Dow Chemical stepped up They had not been successful with the previous administration, but they thought they could, so they made a run at Trump's administration, threw a million dollars at his inaugural fund, sat down with his his people, and the ban on chlorpyrifos magically went away. So we could still use it on food. But that's the way Washington has been working and still working, and we can only hope the Biden administration will clean it up. They say they are going to, They say they're going to restore scientific integrity. They say there's been a huge problem. So we will see.
0: And what kind of foods is that chemical used on?
1: A lot of fruits and
0: vegetables that you feed kids. Yeah, well, is that going to be your next book? Oh, I hope never to write another book about a pesticide, truly. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure but it does feel uh just that sort of loss of trust in science like i feel like we we've, we've just been through a year of dealing with the ramifications of you know not being able to to trust the information that's coming out and not knowing where where to find the correct information you know just dealing with this pandemic and with the um this public health crisis so I know it's it's a different kind of thing but it is difficult.
1: I do think, I mean, I've found so many really good scientists who are working in these agencies, EPA, USDA, FDA, CDC, you know. They're they're doing their jobs, they're trying hard career scientists, but it's this political, it's this money in Washington, it's all of the money and the power is tied to money, and then decisions and management is tied to money. And if we could get the money out of Washington or, you know, get decisions and and oversight to not be tied to, to corporate money and corporate power, I think you could make a real difference. Because the scientists who are in these agencies, I think for the large part, really do want to do good work. And... You hear from them, you see, you know, there's some whistleblowers that have come out. You know, a guy just got in touch with me on LinkedIn a a month or so ago, a scientist who'd worked forever for his career at the USDA, and he said, you know, I never could talk to you before because I would get fired, I'd get censored, but now I can talk to you. Now I can tell you,
0: you know, about the science. And it shouldn't be that way. That shouldn't be the way our agencies work. And have you personally suffered any... Consequences for your reporting in terms of your own safety or any threats from Monsanto?
1: Monsanto had a spreadsheet drawn up we have copies of to try to smear my book, my first book, Whitewash, to try to discredit it, using, again, a lot of third-party groups and people to write negative reviews. They made a video. They were purchasing, like, search engine optimization stuff so that if you would google my name or my name of my book you'd get all these bad things that they had different groups write about me they've done that to numerous people there are new york times reporters who've won pulitzer prizes that you can see that articles were those they're called liars and (laughs) things that that were written by groups that we know got money from monsanto
0: Can you say anything about where things stand now for Lee Johnson? I mean, he he did win his case, but that sort of wasn't really the end of the story for him in terms of he hasn't necessarily gotten the money. So the book went to print right before Lee finally got his money.
1: It was less than 10% of the jury, what the jury awarded him for reasons that are explained in the book, but he ended up getting getting some money. Uh, he is still alive. He has outlived all of the expectations of, that the doctors had. He's not doing very well, though. He's recently told me he's pretty tired of the fight with cancer. He's growing tired, weary of it. The constant pain is just so much. So, uh, and the settlement goes on. Bear, you know, is paying some people and not paying some other people. Uh, As it turns out, when you have 100,000 people, $11 billion doesn't go very far when you pay attorney's fees and reimburse Medicare and that sort of thing. So people are not getting rich off this by any means. Uh, The average settlement is about $165,000 and then you take the 40% of attorney's fees out of that and you take 25 to 30% for Medicare reimbursement out of that and that's what people are walking away with.
0: Yeah, that doesn't seem like much when a company has done harm that has affected their lives, their bodies. It's not like their car got banged up or something.
1: But many countries around the world are now looking to ban glyphosate and taking a harder look at other pesticides. It's you know a, a lesson learned about the need to pay attention uh, to these chemicals and what they're doing to human health. And maybe we need to be more careful. Maybe we don't need to spray them willy-nilly all over farm fields, you know, and all over the food that we eat. And maybe we need to be more cautious and wear more protective clothing. Or maybe we just need to ban it altogether. Or some places, like New York State, is saying maybe we aren't going to spray this in public places anymore where kids play. So people are educated and aware and alert and making some changes.
0: Yeah, I hope that is what comes out of it. I I you know, see it on big displays at, you know, Rural King here in in Bloomington, Indiana. Not even just not even Roundup like flat out glyphosate, you know, just advertised and it's just like, wow, people are still using that okay
1: (laughs) yeah yeah
0: but i think maybe they're still using it but maybe
1: they use it more carefully or maybe they use it and they wear gloves (laughs) and a face mask or maybe they don't spray it and then let their dog go roll around
0: it you know i i i I can only hope and maybe as the word gets out more people will maybe not be using it for household use so much or at Mm -hmm. schools well, is there anything that you would like to, to add that we didn't get to? Any final words? I just, I really do hope that people
1: enjoy this book. The first book I know, people never told me that, gosh, I really enjoyed your book. They People would say, gosh, your book really made me mad, or, <laughs> you know, I wanted to throw it across the room, or I am afraid to, to eat any food now, or something like that. But this book, I think, The Monsanto Papers... I hope that it touches people's hearts, I, do, I hope that it resonates and it touches your heart and it makes you care about people like Lee Johnson who are suffering from cancer and I hope it makes you you know, want to hold companies accountable when they don't tell us the truth and make a better world for our kids. So that's, that's my hope that the book will uh, spark
0: yeah and I think because it's so accessible, I think that it it probably will touch a lot more people's lives. I think people are more likely probably to read it because of the the nature of the way the story's told, so i think I think that's a great achievement to make something like this that is so long and involved, you know to make it something that um, more people might pick up to read yeah well, good. well, thank you for having me. Yes, thank you so much. I really appreciate it and good luck with whatever you're uh, working on in the future. I, I really appreciate your work. Thank you. I appreciate that. I've been speaking with Carrie Gillum. She's the author of Whitewashed, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science, which won the 2018 Rachel Carson Book Award from the Society of Environmental Journalists. Her book, The Monsanto Papers, Deadly Secrets, Deadly Secrets, Corporate Corruption and One Man's Search for Justice was released in 2021 from Island Press. Carrie Gillum worked as a reporter for Reuters for 17 years and she is currently the research director for the nonprofit U.S. Right to Know. Find links to her work at eartheats.org. The
2: Eartheats team includes Ayoban Binder, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Katen Knobloch, Josephine McRobbie, Daniela Richardson, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed.
0: Special thanks this week to Carrie Gillum.
2: Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earthy is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey.